Good morning, Australia, and good evening, America. Welcome back to Radio Tony. This is a conversation with Kez, our authors and artist show. And every week we talk to another brilliant author with my co-host, international best-selling Kez Wickham St. George. So just a reminder for all of you listening live on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch, we have Payo live online ready to respond to your comments and questions and send you the link for anything that we talk about on this show. A reminder that all the replays of the show are now available on Binge Networks TV, Hero Go Networks TV across the US and on the Tony TV channel app on all Roku, LG LG, and Samsung smart TVs worldwide. Uh, This series, of course, is uh, co-hosted with my amazing co-host, Kez Wickham St. George. And Kez, as you know, is the driver of her own creativity, and she has a passion to inspire others to tell their stories. Her values are simple. If you touch a heart, you can change a life. And by changing and encouraging people to write or journal, She adds value to each and everyone's lives. Um, Today on the show, we have a beautiful guest for you, the wonderful Linda MacGyver, or Dr. Linda MacGyver, who pioneered authentic data science and communicational science education with real impact for secondary students and founded the Australian Data Science Education Institute in 2018. The author of Raising Heretics, Teaching Kids to Change the World, Linda is an inspiring keynote speaker and has appeared on ABC's panel program Q&A and regularly delivers engaging professional development for primary, secondary and tertiary educators across all disciplines. Uh, Linda is a passionate educator, researcher and advocate for STEM equality and inclusion and has a PhD in computer science education and extensive teaching experience and history. And Linda's mission is to ensure that all Australian students have the opportunity to learn STEM and data science skills in the context of projects that empower them to solve the problems and make a positive difference in the world. Good morning, Dr. Linda. Uh, Welcome to the show, Kez. I'm going to hand off to my co-host, Kez, now. Welcome, ladies. Thank you, Tony. And Linda, welcome. How are you this morning? Thanks so much. It's lovely to be here. I'm excited. Good. I have some questions for you, Linda. Um, And that is, after that wonderful um, preview of what you do by Tony, (laughs) 
Um, my my question is just so simple. It's why did you become a teacher? I was um I was a computer science academic for a long time. So I was researching computer science education and I was doing some tertiary teaching as well, some lecturing, but I felt like the work that I was doing in education wasn't making it into the classroom. So I was learning stuff about the way kids learn and how we should teach, but it wasn't translating into actual change. And, um, you know, looking back, I think my whole life I've been looking for ways to to create change, to actually fix things. And, and, and uh, when the opportunity came up to go into teaching, I figured that this was an opportunity to actually put this stuff into practice and to figure out how to how to really engage kids with with computer science education which was my big focus at the time um and how to actually really make change you know really impact kids lives sounds it sounds like the work you're doing is just so necessary i think it's really important like it's it's I, 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 it makes me cry when I hear people say not everyone can learn to program or some people are just bad at programming or it's not relevant to me because it actually in the digital world, it has to be relevant to all of us. And we have, you know, we have companies like Facebook and Uber and Amazon that are increasingly changing the direction, not just of our lives, but our whole society. And we have no say in that because we don't understand what they're doing. And so sure. everybody needs to have that understanding so that we can actually have a, a say in the direction that our world is taking. Mm, I agree. Yeah, I for one, I don't understand half the stuff that they're doing. I think, oh, well, we've changed again, another direction. And you have to go <laughs> along with it. There's there's nothing you can actually do, is there? To, to, with no, and they rely on that. Yes. I mean, it's like standing banging a drum in the middle of an empty field. No one's going to listen to you. So <laughs> it's very important that what you teach us um, and I was very interested. I read the word heretic suddenly jumped out at me and I thought, oh, I like that word. <laughs> it's such a good word and it's so compelling. And I have to admit, I didn't come up with it. I was having coffee with a friend and I was explaining to her what I do and how the critical thinking is a really big part of it and how teaching kids to challenge you know, the status quo and accepted orthodoxy has become a big focus of what I do. So I've moved more away from the programming and more into really teaching kids how to think and how to solve real problems. Mm. And she said, oh, so you're raising heretics then? And I was like, oh, that's it. That's, that's perfect. So credit to Kathy Meyer. That is where the, the term raising heretics comes from. And yeah. it's, you know, it's just been growing ever since. It's, it's such a perfect description. Yeah, it's, it's fabulous. I get called a catalyst a lot, but I've never been called a heretic. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Tony, I don't know if I've actually been. Ex... You go, sorry, Cass. go. Tony. <laughs> There's my lag happening. I'm so sorry, audience. Um, we have a little bit of a technical issue with my internet today, so it's lagging a bit behind the girl. So you'll have to forgive me. Um, Linda, I just wanted to expand a little bit more on that concept of um, heretics and and how you have a real passion for uh, getting kids to think in a different way. Looking at the world in which we find ourselves specifically at the moment that is filled with a bit of anti-science rhetoric and yeah a lot of inability to constructively uh, assess information for what it's worth. 
do you think that that whole idea is partly behind your desire to get kids to thinking do you think we've lost our way and we've lost our ability to think critically um oh absolutely and when you think about the world yeah it's not so much that we've lost it it's that it's been it's been we've been trained it's been trained out of us um, the education system is very much designed to produce kids who sit down, who do what they're told, who get the right answers yes. and solve the textbook problems and do really well on the exams. And the trouble is problems in the real world don't have textbook solutions. You can't look at the back of the book and say, did they I get don't. this right or wrong? Um, you have to be able to evaluate your work critically and think, who does this help? Who does this harm? How well does it work? Where does it fall down? And we don't teach those skills. We don't teach them at all. What we teach kids, as I said, is to is to to do the right thing, to the right thing, you know, to do yeah. what they're told. Yeah. And the problem is, you know, some people try to break out of that and become heretics, but in a in a um, an irrational yes. way. You know, so they're looking for yes. they're looking for easy answers. They're looking for things yes. they can cling to that says things aren't this bad. So you know, climate science denial yes. is a very comforting thing. I don't want to believe in climate change either because it's terrifying, <laughs> and I don't want to believe in COVID because it's terrifying. Have... Absolutely agree with you, Linda. I I absolutely think that part of for everyone for everyone who's saying that we're being either controlled by the government or the science is bad or we're being lied mm-hmm. to doesn't mm-hmm. have that ability to critically assess what they're being told and it's little no. to do with control or conspiracy it's so much to do with our lack of ability to constructively um, assess and and make decisions on the information that we have, and the I find it incredibly frustrating that they that many people discount science and scientists. And I'm not yeah. talking everyday people. I'm talking um, higher level uh, people in government, in politics, oh, goodness, in the judicial yes. system. Discarding science, I find it oh, unfathomable. Because as you know. Sorry, Tony, there was that lag again. Here's the thing that the way we the way we teach science is actually almost making this inevitable. It's making this distrust of science inevitable because we teach science as a matter of facts and right answers and known processes that produce known results. That's not science. What we're teaching kids is you do this experiment the way we wrote it and get the result that you expect to get. And if you don't get the result they expect to get, what they do is they either fudge their results or they copy from the kid next door who did get the expected results. That's not teaching science. That's teaching confirmation bias. And I talk about this a lot in the book, that science is actually a matter of changing our understanding and evolving our understanding and constantly understanding things better, which you can see in our understanding of COVID, that it has changed over time as and we it start is to understand and more. And it will change. Absolutely. And that is science doing what it's supposed to do. But you see people who, who have been raised to believe that science is facts and right answers saying, well, you're, you keep changing your tune, therefore you're lying to us. And it's like, no, 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 this is what science yeah. is supposed to do. This is, this is us learning more and changing our understanding and updating our understanding according to what we now know. 
that's the way science is supposed to work but it's not the way we teach it so we have to change that we have to we have to get the kids working with things that um that don't have textbook answers that don't you know produce the the expected outcome where they actually don't know whether they've got the right answer or not and they have to test it and they have to evaluate it and they have to be skeptical of their own results as well as the results of others but rationally skeptical so they're actually testing it they're looking for evidence they're looking for data and they're looking for meaning we don't teach that right now and we really need to it's crucial and That was the thing that frustrated you most about the education system, wasn't it, Linda? That's what started this passion of yours, was that frustration with the education not equipping our children or teachers to make better decisions and follow science and question question things to improve our knowledge and understanding, yeah? Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and what I... What I learned was when I started teaching data science in my classes and I was using real data sets so that we didn't have right answers and we didn't know what we were going to get yeah. you know, when we worked on this, on the problems, um, I realized that this was a breakthrough. The kids loved it. They were, you know, when we used to teach computer science the old way with, you know, toys and drawing pretty yeah. pictures and pushing <laughs> robots out of circles and all that stuff, they would constantly come to me. And these were science kids. I was at a science school and they were, you know, you would think they were a kind of captive audience, but they would come to me and go, why are you making me do this? I don't want to do this. It's not relevant to me. When we started doing data science, they started coming and going, oh, my God, this is so useful. And I use this for my science project and I'm using it in maths. And I'm and oh, my goodness, there was this graph in the news the other day and it was outrageous. There was no zero and it was so misleading. <laughs> like, so they were starting to apply it not just to their other subjects, but to their everyday life. And I realized I've, I've figured it out. I figured out a how to how to persuade kids that STEM skills are actually useful uh, and that they can, they're, they're a tool they can use to solve problems in the real world, but also how to engage them with them and figure that not only are they useful, it's something they can do. I get very frustrated when people are like, oh, you know, some kids just can't learn to code. That's rubbish. Anyone can learn to code. It's not a magic skill. <laughs> it's, mm. it's you, anyone can do it. Um, but they need to have the motivation. They need to want to do it. And they need to see that it has, uh, it has purpose and Relevance. meaning for them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's you know why I left education because I thought well I left teaching I didn't leave education I left teaching because I thought everyone needs to have these opportunities not just the kids in my classes and the only reason I could do those projects was because I was part-time and so I was using my own time to find the data sets and build the projects and understand the data sets and you know connect with scientists who needed problem solved and all that kind of stuff you can't do that if you're a full-time teacher your own time is pretty much reserved for passing out (laughs) it's exhausting Uh, so I thought if I can build those resources and do all that kind of legwork and then hand it over to the teachers ready to roll you know as a a project plan and lesson plans that they can just grab and run with then that takes that burden away from them but also gives many many more students the opportunity to do those kinds of projects yeah yeah so Linda I see that you found a um, you founded a data science education charity. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Why did you do this? 
So when I, when I left teaching, I thought I'm going to find who's doing this kind of work and I'm going to join them and we'll make it a thing, you know, we'll, we'll really build it up. And I looked around and I looked around and I you know, put the call out. No one was doing it. It was, it was, you know, there are individual teachers doing amazing work in individual classrooms, but no one was doing this work on a bigger scale and trying to connect all those teachers and trying to build the resources and things. So I thought, okay, well, it has to be me. I'm going to have to start my own organization. And I made it a charity because a huge part of this for me is that this should not be available only to the schools that can afford it in the high socioeconomic areas who have lots of funding and their private schools and the you know parents will pay for anything and all that kind of stuff. I didn't want this work to be available just to them. I wanted it to be freely available to any school, regardless of income and regardless of resources. And I wanted to be able to just say, well, you can't afford to pay for the training. I will give it to you for free. So that's why wow. I made it a charity. That's amazing. Well done. And yeah. My ultimate goal is to Absolutely. put my organization out of business. You know, mm. I want this to be the way we teach, the way we teach teachers, the way we, you know, it's just, it's just built in. I don't yeah. think my job's in any immediate danger, <laughs> but, uh, no. but that's the goal. You know, I don't, I don't want to be necessary. Yeah. I'm an ex-teacher. Um, I, I taught for, what, 15 years in, in art and tourism. So I know exactly what you're talking about when it comes to data. I really do, because we were literally fodder-fed. Yeah. And, and it wasn't, you know, it was like, I, I like to use my brain. Mm. Yeah, so it... Um, came down to came down to who said what and if you could get your say in to your students before they got their booklets out and and it was all in black and white for them yeah. to to try and cope but it was it was ridiculous and I just got frustrated so that's one of the reasons why I left because I wasn't getting through to them especially in in what I was teaching and that's the art form of, of um communication and, and tourism mm. so yeah I just wasn't getting through to them yeah mind you maybe it was me maybe you know they said to me maybe you're getting your brain isn't up to the job and I thought well thank you very much well that's charming <laughs> yeah, well, oh well you know people do blame you know when they're not when they can't find a reason to protect themselves they'll blame the other person I mean that's just Absolutely. human beings for you but also the the lack of respect for teachers in our society is a huge oh, yes. problem yeah. you know the people there's, there seems to be this attitude. Well, I went to school, so I know what 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 teaching is like. And this is mm. so much teaching, so much yeah. of the work of teaching happens outside the classroom that people never see. And there's sure. so much skill mm. and and talent really involved mm. in being a good teacher. Yes. And there are amazing yeah. teachers out there, and they're just not not given the support or the resources that they need. Mm. And you know, the burden of pointless admin and paperwork yep. and you know the government demanding that everyone yes. work in lockstep and teaching to the test and all that stuff yeah if we could take all of that away and just give the teachers the power to to follow their own teach. instincts and to teach the mm. way they want to teach in the classroom and really give it their their all it would be yes. an entirely different system so this is and not about teachers being bad this is the system not the teachers that's right it's it's um applying your own creativity into the classroom isn't it mm. yeah and, and there's very little scope for that in, in right. most mm. teaching situations I was very lucky that I had the opportunity to create my own subject um when I was when I was teaching and uh, and, and we did you know those students worked with scientists to solve their data needs and I had year 11 students doing cancer research 
And it was wonderful, you know, because they kept working on those projects after long after the subject was finished, some of them after they (laughs) were so cool. Yeah. Because they were doing something real. I had a student come to me in my last year of teaching saying, please, please, can I do your assignment? I know I'm not in your class, but I really want to do your assignment. (laughs) He wasn't even doing the subject and he wanted to do the assignment. You know, that that was telling, (laughs) told me that I had something powerful here. Yes, definitely. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Um, Linda, I was reading through um, all of your information again um, last night and um, I come across a blog that I thought I'd quickly talk about today if you're um, comfortable um, to talk about and that's about medicine and scientific and the blog is called Is Medicine as Scientific as We Think? And it's a wonderful blog and you allude to the God complex that we still see and hear about in medicine. And my nursing background was triggered and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so there with you. And I thought we'd quickly (laughs) discuss it this morning on the show if you're open to that and Mm -hmm. that idea that there is still so much of that God complex in medicine and medicine and science are joined together and our medicine is only good as good as the advances that we make and the knowledge that we gain but not all practitioners keep up with that medical knowledge and the science behind it so are you happy to tell the audience just quickly about your daughter's story yeah, absolutely. So I'll give you the kind of high-level overview. You can look on the ADSI website yeah. for the, yes. the blog post if you want the, the full blog. details. Um, my daughter has a condition called postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which is POTS for short. Yes. We'll call it POTS for now so I don't chip over my tongue. Um, and what that involves is uh, when she stands up, her, her heart rate skyrockets. Um, so she gets a very yep. fast heart rate when she stands up and she gets very dizzy and sometimes she falls down mm-hmm. again straight away. And in trying to get yeah. this diagnosed, we went to one cardiologist who uh, who had his assistants conduct a battery of tests on Zoe before he swanned into the consulting room and conducted the only test that actually is diagnostic of POTS, which is um, if you take the heart rate sitting down and then you take the heart rate as yep. soon as she stands up and then you wait a couple yep. of minutes and take it again. And if the heart rate rises by mm-hmm. 30 beats, per minute uh, from sitting to standing and stays there then you have pots now the the Mm. cardiologist did that and uh with great um condescension pronounced she doesn't have pots she doesn't meet the criteria uh she's she she had had some hip surgery a couple of years before he said she was just deconditioned from the surgery she just needed to do some exercise despite the fact that she is extraordinarily fit and does a lot of exercise in her own time and despite these radical hip surgeries that she'd had she she runs so Mm. we went home feeling really kind of disheartened because we were sure this was the answer uh, and it yeah. took months before I could persuade Zoe, who's now 18 and, and her own person, to find another cardiologist because she was like, what's the point? He'll just say the same thing. Anyway, she went to another cardiologist just last week who said, you absolutely do have POTS. And what's more, the, the notes from the cardiologist you saw before show that you have POTS. His own diagnostic test shows that you have POTS. Your heart mm-hmm. rate did go up 30 and it stayed up like from his own notes. 
you have pots. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so what I think mm-hmm. must have happened is that he had decided that she had been deconditioned from the surgery. He'd heard the story. He'd decided yes. his diagnosis. And then he did the test and his own confirmation bias said, you see, I was right in my magnificence. Therefore, she's not, you know, she doesn't have uh, a problem. Yes. And, uh, you know, that was, um, I think, nearly a year. No, more than a year. That was more than a year of not knowing what to do, not knowing how to treat this condition, uh, not being able to make progress simply because this arrogant, uh, I won't say the word I'm thinking of, (laughs) Um, this this idiot, you know, believed in his own Mm -hmm. magnificence more than he believed in the the evidence in front of his eyes. Um, And this is a really common thing. And there are a couple of things that I want to highlight. One is he didn't tell us the numbers that he had recorded. If he had, we'd have been able to, you know, argue with him then and there. And the second yeah. is that um, this kind of, there was no opportunity for back and forth or questioning or yeah. or any kind mm-hmm. of doubt. It was just he hands down his magnificent magnificent pronouncement and swans out of the room. Yes. And um, yes. you have to be able to, to be engaged in your own care, you have to be able to in, be informed about your Proactive. own care and you have to be able to um, to actively engage in the decision-making. And Definitely. we know that, that you know, decades of research have shown that patients who are actively engaged in their own care and well-informed have much better outcomes. Yeah. But this doctor, you know, didn't want any part of that. The other thing wow. is, Linda, that you, if you know your body best and you know when there's something that's not quite right and the trick is always where there's some ego or god complex is what we used to call it when i was nursing uh it's about navigating that and saying well yes i agree blah 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 but this is what my body's doing so i'd had a daughter who is um quite a lot taller than me and she too had that um situation where she would go from sitting to standing um in her teenage years and faint (laughs) and no one would uh, believe her. And, of course, back then I wasn't very open to questioning doctors, whereas now I'm pretty proactive. I know my body. I know when something's not right. I've done all the the science or, or medical indications. I've tried some of the natural as well. Nothing's working, so I need you to sort this issue out. But lots of people are not proactive in their own health they're not understanding how their body functions Um, and it all relates back to that idea that stems from this interview is about getting kids to think critically because then they become the thinkers um, and they're proactive in not only their own lives but the the world around them they question things that's a good thing Mm -hmm. isn't it absolutely and and you know I, I use that as something of a test when I see a new doctor. If I ask them questions yes. and they their hackles go up, then I'm out. <laughs> like this is not going to work. Whereas yeah. if I see a doctor and I ask them questions, they go, oh, you know, that's a really good question, and this and that, and you know, they're absolutely prepared to engage yes. with the questions and prepared to engage with the evidence. That's a doctor I can work with. Um, 
and yeah. and the new cardiologist I vividly remember driving home with Zoe from that first appointment saying hang on that's ridiculous yeah. because what happens if it's 29 beats not 30 you've still got a problem yes but it's yeah. just not it yes. doesn't fit the diagnostic yes. criteria like what are we supposed to do with that it makes no sense and the new cardiologist while he was waiting right. a couple of minutes to take the the third measurement said of course you know, there's a long way from normal to POTS and, you know, you might be 29 beats and still have an issue. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know, where was the other cardiologist's admission of that? Where was his, Yeah. where was his own critical thinking? He was working yes. from the textbook yes. diagnostic criteria and not thinking about anything else. And that's, that's, that's not good yeah. enough. No, it's not good Absolutely. enough. Absolutely. Yeah. No, so you have to, to ask in... those questions. I was in the same situation yesterday when I went and saw a specialist and uh, he was not very forthcoming with my questions because I'd already studied the situation um, yeah. and I had information and he more or less said, I'm, I'm the doctor here. And oh, I'm, oh, oh, oh. Okay. <laughs> I think I need to see someone else. <laughs> yeah. Goodness it me, that's like, such a red flag. Well, when he, you know, when it you were is, isn't it? When you take the medication or you're going to suffer. Hmm. But what if you don't, what if the medication's affecting you? And I was hmm. literally asking, not for myself, but on behalf of my husband, who is not, he will do anything. If the doctor said jump over um, a pole, he would do it. Hmm. So I was, I was asking questions and this man was not very forthright because he, he was literally looking at his screen and reading to me, not interreacting mm. with my face my mm. eyes what I was saying yeah so I agree with what you're saying it's um getting back to the subject it's not all about me it's <laughs> you have charities <laughs> you have charities and you work to help kids and teachers I find that interesting so the goal is I train the teachers rather than the students because it scales better. You know, if I train 25 kids, I've only trained 25 kids. Whereas if I train 25 teachers, then hopefully I'm reaching all of the kids those teachers yeah. want to teach. Um, mm. So it's much more scalable. It's also much more likely to change the system. You know, if we can build a groundswell of teachers who, mm. who are working in this way and who believe in these approaches, which are, you know, thoroughly evidence-based, then we can actually start mm. to create change. And I've got a Facebook group uh, called Teachers um, Teachers Using Data Science, and it's got um, nearly yeah. 600 members now uh, of teachers who are doing this kind of work and sharing resources and, and answering each other's questions and stuff. So we're starting to build this groundswell of, of, um, of people who want change. Fabulous. Yeah. Well, so the, and, 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 somewhere in that sorry Kez, somewhere in no, no, that cohort of the next generation of kids will be the forward thinker that solves the cancer problem or one yeah. of the cancer problems i absolutely uh -huh. believe that our human brain has that capacity using uh, science and critical thinking and research to solve those problems. And if we allow our children and allow our teachers to teach in a way that uh, facilitates that, we will have our answer. I absolutely believe that there are answers there. We've seen it over generations. Um, Linda, do you think that 
the the progress of uh, data science and science in general is escalating. Like it seems to seems it seems to be a lot going on in that space. It's like a explosion of learning and knowledge and information. There absolutely or is, is it just I'm me? Sure, I'm not yeah. sure how much of it is progress. Uh, that's you know this is part of okay. the issue with data science. Um, it's the business world and governments have kind of seized on it as as this kind of uh, magic unicorn that's going to solve all of their problems. Mm-hmm. And so what they yeah. do often, you know, I, I have friends who who run a data science consulting company, and they have companies going to them saying give us some AI, we need AI, you know, AI is the thing, artificial intelligence, we've got to have it. And, and my friends are like, mm. sure, what, what do you want the AI for? And they don't know, they just know that everybody's got AI, so we need to have AI. And there's a lot of that kind of attitude, you know, that company, yeah. Eliza is a, you know, very um, mm. ethical and, and rational company, yes. and they don't, um. you know, try to profit off that kind of attitude but many companies do you know you yes they go to another company and say i want ai the company will give them ai and who knows whether that ai will actually do anything useful or whether it will actually cause harm you know there was yeah um there are so many examples of of computer systems that cause harm you know we could we could talk about robo debt uh, in australia or mm. predpol in the us which is predictive policing which you yeah. know tries to tries to use data to predict whether crimes are going to happen but simply amplifies the bias uh, inherent in the policing yes. that already happens and so it's sort of well crime's going to happen where it happened before and so they uh, they do more policing in that area, and of course, when they do more policing, they find more crime, and you know it just they becomes a vicious more crime. cycle. Yes. Um, so we can, you know, we can use computer systems to cause immense harm if we're not careful. And this mm-hmm. is another reason why I think everybody needs to be educated about what these systems can and can't do, so that we can have those rational conversations. And you don't have companies rushing off to data science consultancy saying, "Give me some AI." It's apparently it's mm-hmm. it's going to save my business. <laughs> it's, it's it's crazy. Um, there's a wonderful example uh, by a researcher by the name of Niels Wouters who developed this system called Biometric Mirror. And yes, uh, yes. Niels, you've heard of Biometric Mirror? Yes, oh, yes, yes. It's great. So what you designed. What he designed was this system that takes a photo and uses a very simple machine learning algorithm to look at the photo and say, you are this old, this gender, um, this sexuality, this uh, ethnicity, uh, you are attractive or not, you are trustworthy or not. It says all of these things based on your photo, which are patently ludicrous, right? You cannot tell that stuff from a person's face but this system does it and what Niels does is he puts this on display and gets people to come up and they takes their photo and it tells them all this stuff about them half the time getting the ethnicity wildly wrong as well and then he has a conversation with Mm. them about see you know this is ridiculous right like like the computer systems can't do this but he heard people when he first started doing this, he heard people walking away from it, having had that whole conversation about how patently ludicrous it was, saying, but it's a computer and it says I'm not attractive and it must be right because oh. it's a computer. <laughs> and he, was just, he was devastated by that. But worse than that, 
after giving talks about this system and talking exactly mm. this about how ridiculous it was and how you can't do yes. this, he was contacted by not one but three human resources companies wanting to buy Biometric Mirror and use it in oh. their hiring processes. And, of course, he didn't sell it, but there are Thankfully, HR companies but- that do that. Uh, there wow. is a system called HireVue, which does exactly that. And it is widely used by very large companies, including Unilever and Hilton Hotels and a whole bunch of others. Uh, it's one of the things I talk about in the oh. book, that we have this ludicrous faith yeah. in computer systems, which is entirely unjustified. That's yeah. amazing. Because they're fallible. Yes. Yes. Because yes. computers, computers are programmed by humans and humans are you know, make mistakes, human error. Honey, you should say so that one of the books that, I talk about in yes. my book is called Made by Humans and it's Ellen Broad yes. from ANU talking about how, you know, artificial intelligence is not some magic unicorn. It was made by people and people make mistakes. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. What a fascinating conversation to have that, you know, we, and, and we are now in this generation so reliant on computers and the internet and everything else but we forget all of it was created by the human mind you know mm-hmm. and it may not be perfect it, it it there will be mistakes there will be stuff ups there will be you know it's not going to uh, be everything that we think it's going to be um before we run out of time, I'm going to hand over to Kez to talk about the book, which is what we really want to talk about today. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the book. And we've already, you've already told me why, why you called it Heretics. Now, when I think about Heretics, I go straight back to the Apostle days and also um, Germany. So Witches. <laughs> yeah, witches. Yeah, yep. so explain a little bit more to the audience heretics so the the idea of heretics um i it started out as a conference talk that i gave and and developed into the book a lot of our scientific discoveries have been made by people who were considered heretical when they first raised them um you know from galileo Mm. galilei saying that the the earth revolves around the sun and not the other way around he was actually labeled a heretic Mm. and and uh, nearly lost his life for it Um, through to Mm. uh, someone like Barry Marshall in Australia who had to literally drink Helicobacter pylori to prove that ulcers are caused by bacteria uh, rather than stress and and then treat it with antibiotics Mm. so that he could show that it was a thing because his first paper, he he and Warren's first paper on the subject was rejected quite viciously and consigned to the bottom 10% of... of, it was. Papers submitted. Absolutely. Um, yeah, they, they completely rejected the idea. And more recently, let me tell you about an example which just horrifies me because it has caused hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people to die unnecessarily of COVID, is the idea that yes. COVID was spread by aerosol particles rather than airborne. So the difference between aerosol and airborne is that aerosol is droplets and they don't stick around in the air, they land on surfaces. So aerosol will only affect you, infect you if you're right in the path of someone's cough or sneeze, or if you touch a surface mm-hmm. and then you know touch your face or whatever. Whereas right. airborne hangs in the air 
and can hang in the air for mm-hmm. hours. Um, and mm-hmm. we know now that COVID is airborne, not aerosol. But we were told for a long time that it was aerosol. And mm. there is a scientist by the name of Lindsay Ma who discovered in 2011 that flu was not aerosol, it was airborne. And she discovered that because yeah. she went and sampled the air right up at the, um, the ventilation ducts. Yeah. She sampled yeah. the air up there and she found enough flu to infect you. Now, if it was aerosol, that shouldn't happen because aerosol particles cannot fly. <laughs> They, they drop. Yes. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And again, she couldn't get published. And when COVID mm. started happening, again, she proved that it was aerosol and couldn't get published. Uh, sorry, airborne and couldn't get published. Yes. And it was months and months before they could persuade the World Health Organization that it was actually airborne and therefore things mm. like quarantine need to totally change. So hotel quarantine in Australia yes. has been a huge problem. It's ineffective. It's, thing. It's, in the, it's in the corridors. It's transferring between rooms. That would not happen if it was aerosol, if it was just droplet-based. Um, mm. So there were, I, I think it, it took almost a year for her to actually, for her and the other scientists she was working with, to get the idea across. Now, the terrifying thing is that the reason that they couldn't believe that it was uh, airborne is they had this fixed idea in their heads that particles, the, the only diseases that can possibly be airborne are, have particles smaller than five microns. Now, mm-hmm. that number comes from a 1930s study of tuberculosis oh, wow. that showed that only particles smaller than five microns can cause tuberculosis infection. And that is true because tuberculosis has to lodge deep in the lungs to make you sick. But most other diseases, mm-hmm. including coronavirus, don't have to lodge deep in the lungs. They can hit, you know, the, nose. the nose and cause illness. So the yeah. five micron thing was not about what could hang in the air. It was about what could make you sick with tuberculosis. Mm. But that five micron thing lasted more than 100 years as scientific orthodoxy that could not be challenged. Yeah. And that is why wow. we need heretics, because there should be nothing mm. that cannot be challenged. Challenged That's with right. evidence. Yeah. Always with evidence, yeah. but you've got to be able to challenge everything. You've got to be able to say, well, hang on a minute. We have new evidence that shows that that's not right. And that mm. is science doing its thing. That is science working the way Absolutely. it's supposed to. Yeah. And I, Linda, I know very clearly that people uh, think that the um, the conversations around COVID are changing. Well, of course they're changing because uh, two years ago we didn't have this virus. So it's only a baby virus. So what Mm -hmm. we know now will be completely different to what we know in Mm. five years' time. And also that that whole idea that the virus can um, change, i.e. the the Delta variant and the prospect that there will be more variants. Um, I'm sorry I'm a little bit off the book, but I just think this is so important. Can you quickly explain to the audience why there will be ongoing variants of coronavirus and how that is just a natural way of viruses? Oh, okay. So Disclaimer, I'm not an epidemiologist or a virologist. So this is a high level of understanding. Um, 
but yeah. but basically viruses evolve it's how covid appeared in the first place it, it evolved out mm-hmm. of a different coronavirus and viruses evolve all the time it's why we need a different flu mm. vaccine every year because the new flu vaccine every mm-hmm. year is hopefully tailored to meet the strains that scientists think are more likely to cause disease this year and some of those strains are new we yeah. haven't seen them before so they have to create a new vaccine so it's the same with COVID. But uh, one of the problems that we face is that COVID evolves really fast compared to a lot of other viruses, yeah. uh, which is why um, Delta appeared you know, very quickly, really, quickly. In, 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 in evolutionary terms. It appeared quite quickly after the, the appearance of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and these things you know, COVID evolves quickly. There, there, there are other variants out there. What we will see is that the variants mm. that, that are most successful, that infect the most people, will take hold, take the hold ones and become survive. more common. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that's yeah. how we, we wound up with the situation we have today with Delta. Yeah. And they need a host. So the host is humans. <laughs> they can't, they can't replicate, they, they cannot, my understanding is that they can't, they're not going to replicate outside the body. They need a host, i.e. a human warm body in which to change and evolve and infect. And the other thing with viruses is that they uh, interact with our body different. So Kez, uh, Linda and I get COVID, we are possibly going to get all different manner of symptoms because it's a virus. It interacts with Mm -hmm. the body in different ways. So that's the whole people... It depends on what viruses you've encountered before and so you know what what how yes. your immune system reacts and what the particular quirks <clears throat> of your immune system are mm-hmm. my immune system is very excited about pollen but not nearly excited enough about yes. viruses <laughs> yes. it's a big problem especially <laughs> in spring um, but yes. you know there's the it, it is different for each human being and that's one of the things that medical orthodoxy tends to get wrong you know this idea that pots is you know, pots over 30 beats and nothing over under 30 beats, different bodies behave differently. And also different, the same body behaves differently on different days. So, you know, if he had tested Zoe the day before or the day after, he may have got different results. And and this is something that the, the, the idea of orthodoxy, the rigid idea that this is the one truth doesn't allow for this kind of natural variation. Mm. Absolutely, and that's part of the reason why you wrote your book, Linda, is to encourage uh, educators, teachers and the next generation of children to think outside and to question uh, things because what we know or think is true today may be disproved uh, down the track. Um, Um, I know that um, I was watching... uh, 60 minutes I think on the weekend and uh, they were talking about um, a woman that had been jailed for the after the death of her four children and they right. only just found a genetic reason for the passing of those mm. children I just mm. I find that fascinating I'm incredibly sad for that woman and and what she's but that is based on the fact that no one could believe that four children mm. could die in one family. We need mm. to challenge those thoughts, don't we, Linda? Well, again, it was down to one arrogant expert believing that he knew yes. the, 
the, yeah. the one true gospel. <laughs> and yes. and as soon yes. as you have as soon as you have scientists or doctors starting to say there is one true orthodoxy, you are stuffed. Yeah. <laughs> you have to Absolutely. you have to have Literally. a scientist and a, yeah. and a doctor who's prepared to say I could be wrong. No. And that is one of the crucial things mm. about the the ideas that I talk about in the book and the ideas that I'm trying to get across in education is that kids learn yeah. to evaluate their own work and they learn that there is no mm -hmm. such thing as 100%. There's no such thing as one right yes. answer. There is an answer mm. which works in yeah. some ways and doesn't work in other ways because that yeah. is real problem solving. Mm. There is no perfect solution to a real world problem. So if we only ever give yeah. the kids problems that have perfect solutions we are not preparing them to solve problems in the real world for the real Whereas world if we give them problems Absolutely. where they actually look and go okay where does my problem work uh, where does my solution work where does it not yeah. work who does yeah. it help who does it harm you know these are questions governments mm. should be asking about policies who does it help who does it benefit who does it yes. harm these yes. are crucial yeah. questions ethical questions that we don't teach but we could really easily and so that's the the focus of the book is teaching that idea that yes, you absolutely need to be critical of things you're told, but you also need to be critical of your mm. own work, and you need to ask the question: yeah. Where does this work? Where does it fail? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'd like to know where can we buy this book? So if you head to my website adse.org, A-D-S-E-I.org, I'm sure it's in the program notes. There's a lot of links it to is. the different places. It's on Very. Amazon, it's on Apple Books, it's all over the place. Most online booksellers will be able to get you a copy, whether you want an ebook or a paperback. Okay. Yeah. So I'm definitely gonna Fantastic. Buy one, but I've got to read it now. <laughs> Fabulous. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I've got my copy on the way as well. I think That's that wonderful. these are the conversations that we need to fill mm. the airwaves with um, mm. to challenge people to think outside what they're currently thinking. And uh, if I can quickly go back to some of the conspiracy theories, uh, some of the hoax theories that are so prevalent across the planet at the moment, even those, they may look at first glance to be questioning science when in fact they're not using science to question properly, are they, Linda? That's right. They're not using evidence. And, and what they're doing is appealing yeah. to our fears. And it's mm. like, you're scared yes. of COVID. I'm going to give you a pill that makes it all go away. Who wouldn't want that? Like, if that was yeah. real, I would take it in a heartbeat. <laughs> But it's yeah. not a thing. Yes. You know, it's 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 the easy answer. It's like saying climate change isn't a thing. That's the easy answer. That's yes. that's the, the happy answer. That's I can live in my happy place until you know a hurricane takes down my house uh, because yeah. of yes. climate change induced weather extremes. But you know, it it's it's much easier to believe that stuff. And yeah. and if it's yeah. if it's easy to believe and it makes you feel better, you probably want to look at it even closer. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Yeah, well, uh, the easy answer we... takes the stress away, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, people don't want to it think does. about it. Yeah, yeah don't want to. They don't want to approach it because we're all really stressed out of our heads with today's living, mm. Um, mm. and we don't know really. Mm. We we're always saying take it slow, step back, take a breath, but we don't because it's all so <laughs> enticing out there. And what's the new program yeah. coming on? But, you know, it, we really do need to um, ask those those very important questions. Is this going to, is this appropriate for me to ingest, be injected with, yes. to take, to read? It's all got to be asked. 
And I'm glad that you're encouraging the kids to ask these questions. I really am. It's really important. Not, it, well, not only kids, but, you know, teaching the parents to teach mm. the kids. It's yeah. so important. And teaching the teachers to teach the kids. And, you know, Linda, sometimes it's just about, um, you know, having a conversation with your kids and yeah. them saying something and you going, okay, so tell me what happens if blah or yeah. What do you think if this happened? Would that change what you've just said to me? So it's it, it really is oh. encouraging that expanded questioning um, instead of just taking things at face value. The other thing, the other component of that, though, Linda, is to be a little, you know, respectful. Okay, mm. I hear what you're saying, but have you considered X, Y, Z? Because I... I get sent so much um, <laughs> on social media <laughs> with regard to the current COVID and, and what, what's going to help you and about the vaccination mm. and about, and mm. I have had to sort of settle myself down number one and then go, but have you thought about this? If what you say is wrong, does it not mean this? And try and be a bit diplomatic, I guess. But it's such a challenge. There's such a lot of angst mm. and division. Yes, it is a huge challenge. But also, yeah. you know, one of the things that I find very powerful with my own kids is to say, where did you get that information from? And where did they get their information from? And, yeah. and how, how much faith do you have in that as a source? Uh, this is my source. Let's compare, yeah. you know, what, what do you think the, the validity is? And um, my husband said something the other day and quick as a flash, the 14-year-old came back at him with something and he was like, where did you, you know, <laughs> why are you doing that? And, and Sol turned to him and said, somebody taught me to be a critical thinker. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then looked at me and looked at their father and, and it was like, yes, and now we are paying the price. <laughs> but that's good, right? Like the, you know, that's good. The, that's good. You have, to be, you have to be able to accept that, yeah, yes. you teach these kids to be critical thinking, they are going to challenge you. And that was good. honestly some of yep. the best lessons I ever had were the, were the ones where the students were like, I don't think you're right and here's why. And then yep. you go into that, you know, it's, you're like, yeah. let's, let's look yep. at that. It's wonderful. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes they were right. Yeah. Because I'm I not agree. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Linda oh. McIver, thank you so much for coming on the show with Kez and I today. For the audience listening, the book is Raising Heretics, Teaching Change to the World, and it's about teaching kids and uh empowering teachers to teach critical thinking now linda's website is the data australian data science institute have i got that right Close. australian, australian data, science data science education, education institute education institute so a there are it's amazing org. resources dot org it's dot org sorry dot org yeah. There are amazing resources on there for teachers, education, educators, kids, and anyone alike. There's also a link to Linda's new book, which I encourage you, if you're a parent of a, a preteen teen 
get this book and teach your kids to think critically. Lovely ladies, that's our lot for this week. Thank you, Kez, once again for co-hosting a conversation with Kez with me. Dr. Linda McGyver, thank you so much for being on Radio Tony today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Audience, that's our lot for this week. We will be back next week and that's it. Bye for now. Thanks so much. Thank you.